welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Anna. I'm Jess. And with us today is Ria. Hi, I'm Ria. Do you want to tell us a bit about your research? Okay, well, I'm part of the history department and I do a lot of humanitarian history focusing on refugees and I'm from the Philippines. So my research focuses on asylum seekers and refugees in the 20th century and their relationship to the state. And I also look at non-state actors and how all of these combine in a humanitarian arena, if we can call it that. So that's fantastic. What period are you looking at? So I look from the 1930s up until the 1990s, and I look at three case studies, which are Jewish refugees fleeing the Holocaust. You've got white Russians from China. This was in 1949 to 1953. And then you've got the Vietnamese boat people. So from 1975 to the mid-1990s. Enjoying it? Yes. It's a very hesitating yes. Do enjoy it. How did you come to do this kind of history? Because humanitarian history is not always the first thing that people think of. No, and um, refugee history is, I think it's an emerging field. It's been a few years and there's quite a growing number of historians in the field already. But my research started because in the Philippines, I was there from 2013 and I had met the head of UNHCR in the Philippines, so the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. And he was asking me about myself and I told him that prior to working, in the real world, mm. I was a classicist and a medievalist. Well, not medievalist, Byzantinist. Oh, cool. So I love history. And he was asking me about my knowledge of Philippine history. And I said, well, just whatever. I was taught in school about colonialism and all of that. And he told me about this history of refugees and how he was surprised that not many Filipinos knew about it. And so I got interested in the topic and it stuck with me for a few years until I decided that I wanted to do a PhD. And I think this topic really fit that because a history of refugees in the Philippines hasn't hasn't been written. You have case studies. You have films, you have memorial plaques, but there's nothing that really shows a thread or a continuation or discontinuation of these policies. I think you've spoken to me about this before, and I think it's really cool that these aren't kind of huge waves of refugees. They're quite small pockets, aren't they? Kind of yep. like to like 5,000, I remember you say, is that a figure? Around oh, that? so each one's different, yeah. So mm. we had, I think there were 1,200 Jews who made it to the Philippines, but there was a plan to admit 10,000 over 10 years. This failed. And then you have about 5,500 during the 1950s when the white Russians came. So if you're not familiar with the term white Russians, these are Russians who are not just considered white because they look white, but (laughs) because they were anti-communist. Love that. Yeah. So So interesting. You never really get to hear about that history. No, very rarely. Um, It's picking up. It's a lot of interest suddenly. And especially kind of the history of Russians in China is really, really interesting because in Manchuria, in northeast China, you've got quite a lot of Russians who are fleeing the revolution. And then you've got the wave of them who decided to leave the PRC when PRC was established. And then there is another wave who left during the Cultural Revolution. And there is actually a Sino-Russian community in Sydney. A lot of them came through the Philippines. Kind of connection between our fields. So what are you looking at? You're looking at kind of quality of life or... 
looking more at state policy and okay. its interaction with what's called the international refugee regime. If you want to simply put that, it's pretty much the organizations and the legal instruments about refugees today led by UNHCR. But back then, UNHCR had its own history. So you start from the League of Nations after mm. the First World War and how that developed later on. So it's about the relationship between international refugee law, state sovereignty, and issues of displacement and humanitarianism. What would you say was the most surprising thing that you found throughout your research? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, I think one of the surprising things is that hardly anyone stayed. It was oh. always temporary. And so that for me was a bit shocking. I guess a lot of them found an opportunity to go to the West. And at that time, it was probably more desirable than living in the Philippines, which was, I guess, very economically dependent on foreign aid with the US, for example. And what else? I think this reliance on foreign NGOs. It was very rare to find any really local Filipino organization that was helping them. It was like the state said, nah, we're always going to have these foreign guys come in. We don't want any money from Philippines or Filipinos coming in to help refugees. And so they kept inviting the UNHCR and eventually an organization called the World Council of Churches comes in as well and does a lot of work. So I think those are the shocking ones. I guess that's interesting about the not many people stayed because from what I've spoken to people when they go to the Philippines, it's often for a holiday, often really idyllic. And so that's interesting. Was that so was that because of the lack of kind of opportunity there? I think the state itself, whoever was in power then, so it's a changing state dynamic. But what was consistent with that was at least when the Philippines gained independence in 1946, it seems that any president there was just like, only temporary, you can come in for asylum, but you can't stay. It was only in the 1930s, now yeah, this was also surprising, that the Philippine president at that time, we were under the Americans uh, as a commonwealth, and he said that, I would like to invite 10,000 Jews to come into the Philippines, but they have to take out naturalization papers. And this is also quite surprising because in the 30s, people have known that you know, these Jews have been stripped of nationality. And here is one solution of giving them a nationality at a time where it was important because, you know, how the world works, it's an international community of states. And refugees are sort of in between that, mm. those countries between the citizen and the state and the other, basically. I guess that's so it kind of speaks to the Shamima Begum case as well. Oh, yeah. It just shows how kind of your research is so important, isn't it? Yeah, because it resonates a lot today. Like when I read the news articles from the 1930s, 1950s, and then you compare it with today, if you just blank out certain words, certain countries of origin, but the rhetoric is the same, you'd probably think that whatever was being said in 1930s Europe is applicable today to states and people, sadly. What kind of methodology are you using? Methodology, because we are historians, huh? <laughs> Can I just say, methodology is completely new to me. I didn't ever have to do methodology at undergrad. And then suddenly I got to MA and they were like, you haven't said anything about methodology. So now I'm like, gotta mention methodology all the time. But yeah, what sort of sources are you using? Yeah, so I have done extensive archival research. <laughs> now this was the fun part. <laughs> I mean, it was fun because when else do you get a chance to travel and, you know, have it funded thankfully yeah. very very generous um, support so 
I was able to visit archives. I think there were 22 of them here in the UK. Then I flew to the Philippines. I went to Switzerland and I went to the United States. Amazing. And there were a lot. And thankfully, I got to meet also former refugees who had their temporary asylum in the Philippines and got to hear some of their anecdotes. And I think these are really what I think forms the heart of the research is these personal stories. You know, you, we have to remember that refugees, they're not statistics. You know, they're, they're people. They're just like everyone. They have histories. We all have our own histories. Is there oral history element to your research? Yes, the ethics <laughs> process oh God, of this. Don't tell me I've yeah. done that whole thing. <laughs> so that was limiting who I could technically talk to. Oh, wow, really? Yes, so I mostly interviewed former humanitarian aid workers, but I think I didn't have time to go and justify if I could interview refugees um, in time to go on field work because it would take a longer process for me to find them first and then get all of the ethics approval for that. What's it like being Filipino and studying your country's history within the University of Manchester? That's quite a w weird dynamic. Yeah, well, you're actually the very first person to ask me this oh question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, I'm very proud to finally include someone who's from the Philippines in, as one of those researchers. And there's a growing body of literature on this, and there's a few Filipinos who work on it, and I'm proud to be one of those. Here in Manchester, I chose the university because of my supervisor. All right, okay. And I was reading all these blogs about how do you do a PhD? <laughs> and everyone's like, you have to pick the right supervisor and all of that. So I chose here. Are you enjoying Manchester? I love Manchester. Don't you? You're involved in quite a lot of outside refugee work. Yes. What does that look like? Yeah, so I'm not those type of people who like to live in the library or in my office. <laughs> and I think Manchester has a very rich history of accepting or at least welcoming refugees and asylum seekers to an extent. And there's a lot of organizations here. And I think there's an opportunity that presented itself. Manchester has a yearly festival now called the Journeys Festival. And I was able to work with them this year in opening up a discussion between NGO workers and academics. And I think that was a very, very fruitful discussion. And a lot of students, I think, gained something from that. I was there. I can oh, attest. It was, it was really, really good. And there was cake. And, and it was really, really good. <laughs> outside of having cake. Because <laughs> outside of having cake. Students cake. need their cake. Yeah, it was it was really, really interesting discussion. And it's really interesting to see the different perspectives between academics and people who are personally involved, especially since so many people who are involved in refugee work have those personal histories of how they came to be involved in it. I think the historian and me, after the case with the 39 Asian people found in, in that truck, I honestly think that this is going to be like one of those turning points where we stop seeing refugees, like you say, as numbers. And when we think of it actually as a real human crisis, I'm sure you will find lots of more research coming out. Yeah. And I think what's important is how these stories are being told by the media, because I feel like if it's always going to be in statistics, that's how people will think of it. But if you include the fact of their story, their journeys. No, you humanize it. You don't demonize the refugee, the migrant, but you're humanizing them. And mm. I think that's something that's very important to remember today, at least. You said that you had a life before your PhD. What were you doing? I'm not saying I don't have a life now. No, I mean PhD. <laughs> I know. <laughs> or do we? I mean, none of I us don't have know. Lives. <laughs> I sold my soul and I worked for a bank. 
Did you? Yeah, but I worked for communications and events, and that is where I learned to love setting up these community-based events. That's why I did the Refugees Past and Present event here in Manchester, so that was really trailing from that experience. And I taught for two years at a university in the Philippines, Western history. And what was great about that was my students were very interdisciplinary. I had chemists, physicists, engineers, all in one class. So the task of flying the flag for history and getting them interested and, you know, you just have the one student that says, oh, I, I appreciate history now. And it's like, yep, done my job. I don't know how you guys feel with teaching history or talking about history with others. It's hard because we obviously share that passion. So we all really like teaching. We all like history, so we'll be passionate about teaching. But I don't think everyone who does history at this university is equally as passionate about it. That's probably true. Especially since a lot of my students who do Chinese history, they are politics and history, or they are international relations and history. And so history is this academic element that's adding more perspective, but it's not really necessarily seen as what is going to get them career. And because of this, I think they will get a lot more involved as we get to the modern times. This week I'm looking at prostitution oh. in modern Britain and I'm like, Cheery. I know, but I'm, I'm hoping that this is going to be the one subject that they might have something to say. I don't know why, but, you know, something that gets a bit more like scandalous, if you will, they might become a bit more vocal. I also think there's just a problem in the UK in terms of we have created this culture in first year where people think it's OK not to show up slash not really be engaged. Yeah, I think in my own first year, I remember all the peers saying like, oh, it's only going to be 10% of your overall mark. Yeah, I know. I think, I, think, I think it's a really big problem. It's really classist because it means that a lot of people who had, had that privileged upbringing of knowing when to put the work in, they don't think they have to show up at all. And I just think it's such a waste of money. It is. <laughs> and I also feel like as TAs, yeah. we put in a lot of effort as well to these courses and trying to make them relatable to the students. And well, it's part of it, I think. Mm. It's a lot of learning process as well to understand your own students. Because I feel like well, every time you teach history, a subject that many people are just like, ah, oh, it's just dates and names. And so it's trying to disrupt that image of history is just memorization, but rather it's critical analysis. Yes. And it's relating it also to current events and how those are his results of historical processes, I think, is important. Critical thinking is a big step up. And it's great that universities in the UK encourage critical thinking. My experience of being in France when I was doing my residence, they don't think critically at all. But it's just, how do you teach critical thinking? I mean, I don't even know if I'm... <laughs> I'm sure you are. You're doing a PhD. You're in your final year of your PhD. I know. It's just that I come from a very conservative background where critical thinking wasn't really encouraged. It was more of these are the knowledge you need to know and only this. And you have to parrot it out. When I started university here in England, I was just so confused when lecturers would be like, well, what did you think about this? And I'm like, am I allowed to think? So did you do your BA or MA here? BA. Oh, where did you go? I went to King's. Oh, amazing. Did yeah. you enjoy it? Yes, loved it. Being in London as an undergrad student was also fantastic. Really? Yeah. I can talk me through that because I'm from London and I couldn't think of anywhere worse to be an undergraduate. I mean, I wouldn't really go back. I guess coming from you know the Philippines and having this image of being in London for one was already inspiring enough. But I think it was you know, growing up in a in quotation marks developing country. You know, you don't have access to public transportation and the traffic in Manila. Oh my God, 
It takes like five minutes to travel a kilometer in a car. Right. So it's terrible. But being in London with a working, functioning train system or buses in general and getting some form of student discount was like, what? <laughs> this is amazing. So important question, London or Manchester? Manchester. Really? Yeah. Very rarely does one see someone chase after a bus. And that's so stupid because in London, buses come like every three minutes. So it's like chill. No one is chilled there. No. <laughs> yeah. Also, I don't really miss hopping onto the tube at Rush R and getting a newspaper shoved in my face. I remember saying to my mum when I used to work in London that I'd finish work at five. I'd be fine, fairly awake, not tired. I'd have my like 45 minute commute and I'd get home and I would be so exhausted. And it was just that 45 minute being crammed on the train and, you know, it would often be a train and then a bus. But yeah, that's one of the kind of the positives about being in Manchester is that it doesn't take an hour and a half or whatever to get everywhere. Yeah, and I think it's slightly safer to cycle here, just a bit. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I've been knocked off my bike here, though. In Manchester? Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, happens, I guess. It's because uh, no one stops when they come out to main roads. I found that. Right, people use the Curry Mile as like a racetrack and it infuriates me. I just have stopped cycling on that road now. But my mum's been knocked over by cyclists many times. Terrible. By cyclists? Yeah. It, it is, and rush hour cycling is a thing too. <laughs> you can see all of them trying to overtake each other. It's great. So you're, you're in your fourth year now. Well, officially in a few, in like two weeks. What has been your favourite part of that time? I will have a nerdy answer to this <laughs> question. It is every time I open my primary sources. I love it. I'm just like, this is why I do this. Really? Yes. Oh, I feel like my nerd. primary sources is a whole heap of really unuseful information. And then there'll be like one tiny thing which is useful yeah, I found when you develop your questions and you know the questions you're asking, then suddenly things start to make sense, wherein I thought, oh, that file looks quite useless. And now I'm just like, what's that file? One thing I wish I did, though, was made a better database to fix all of my archival material. It, it's it's a mess. It's like, oh, God, which archive was that? Which file? I have thousands of documents. Yeah, oh, my God. I've just sorted out all my notes and I've just like backed them up. And by backing them up, I've had to organize them and it's been such a lifesaver. Because now they're all in one document, so I can just do Control-F and just find that one keyword. But I think part of being a history PhD is learning how to be an archivist at the same time. Oh my God. Because you're creating your own personal archive of things. I've been saying, because I I did volunteer at an archive very briefly, and I think it was those few months really helped me understand how an archive works and what it's like to be an archivist and to know how to use an archive to find sources. And I think it's really important knowledge that everyone should do, because otherwise you just kind of go up to the person and be like, give me all this, all this information but you know you need to know how the system works yeah and sometimes you have to be very creative in your searches mm. because sometimes it might not be in that file but you have to think in a parallel way so your brain is consistently creating networks that's, at the same time it. today I was, I've been searching for months my local area in the archive website in so many archive websites just been searching my bar at Haringey Haringey or like activism Haringey community development and nothing I was getting nothing and then today I just searched local politics and I had so much information information and I was just like oh great like I could have done this weeks ago but yeah search terms tags yeah learning synonyms 
which is you God. only learn that kind of a, a year what am I like a year and a few months in yeah they need to be teaching this undergrad I <laughs> never went into an archive until my PhD and oh, wow. everything I have is archive based so for me that was very daunting because every archive you go to is so different especially if you go to the US the national archives there have a very very strict security protocol where you go through like three different security areas to transfer your files into different envelopes it's insane some allow water some don't so sometimes you're dying of thirst All but the time. you can't leave that's why I hate archive work so much because you can't drink and I'm like always drinking I'm always thirsty yeah and I hate just sitting there being like I need to drink so badly yeah and I think what I found interesting in my I think the first archive I went to was here in the National Archives in the UK and I got there and I was like okay I'm gonna take the pictures great note-taking skills and I go there and I've got my mobile phone and there are so many people with proper like SLR cameras and camera stands and I'm there trying to make sure my shadow isn't in the file, <laughs> which took forever to do. I'm notorious at doing this, that I'll take a photo of the document, but you know how the, the catalogue code is always in the top right hand corner, always cutting it out. Learn now, but I used to do that all the time. I had to use microfilm for the first time this year. Okay. It was absolutely a terrifying experience. Before that, I felt like this is something all of the historians around me have done and I haven't <laughs> and now I know how to do it and I'm like why did anyone think that was a good way of preserving information <laughs> it's so true I'm just waiting for like every single newspaper to be digitized and then I'll use it as a primary source but until then I'm not going to do microfilm work what was interesting with microfilm is it's technologically capable of being scanned so I went to one of these archives where all of the ones I needed were in microfilm but then you just press scan and it would just That's scan so it good. and digitally save it to your USB right away and I was like this is amazing the microfilm things that I was working with was it was literally just the, the lamp and it was showing you on the screen mm. what was there but there was no scanning so what's been your worst part? The worst part? I don't know if there is a worst part, but I think with the PhD, and I'm sure you've had plenty of people probably talk about this already, is the emotional roller coaster. I think I have emotions I never knew I had <laughs> come out in this PhD. A lot of self-doubt, which I think is quite scary because I'd like to think of myself as someone who was more or less confident in what they're pursuing and just really shook me to the core. I don't know how you guys feel every time you have a supervision meeting, but it's just like suddenly, I know nothing yeah. moment. <laughs> All the time. And, it, and I'm waiting for that day when I complete the PhD and I pass my Viva Touchwood and then the imposter syndrome will just disappear. No, I don't think it will. Yeah, I don't think it will either. <laughs> I wonder if it's like a gendered thing because I hear about it more, way more among girls. Well, maybe just because women talk about it more. I, I do feel that that could be the fact that women a lot of the time feel a lot more comfortable talking about it. And I think similarly in the media, Twitter accounts that we follow, the ones that talk about mental health tend to be run by women. Yes, it's true. I'm aware of this, yeah. yeah. On social media, don't you? And I think we are pretty lucky to have such a strong support, at least from the school, mm -hmm. about providing these means of dealing with well-being. Because I spoke to other PhD students in other universities, and a lot of them find there's a lack of addressing that. So it becomes something that is very student-driven, who always have to try to find the funds and propose why they need it. And I think we've been quite lucky here. Well, we've just, I've changed the bucket, the sweet bucket. Got a sweet bucket going in our grad school. Wow. And I've yeah, made I don't know. I'm it Christmas. Today I made it Christmas themed. That's nice. 
Georgia and me started it by getting the bucket with some sweets for Halloween and then somebody stole our bucket. Was it you, Rhea? No. <laughs> Don't go into my office. That horrible criminal stole our bucket. I was so upset because I bought some sweets to put more sweets in it and anyone was welcome to help themselves to the sweets. Mm. And I was really upset and I walk into the dining area and Jess was making a coffee there and I told Jess and Jess was like, oh, I thought it was just like well-being people yeah, put it there. Yeah, I did. And then now I love it. And every time I go to the shop, I'm like, I've put chocolate coins in there today. Oh, that's really like nice. Yeah. Okay, I think I live in a bubble now because I know nothing. I stay in my office. You work office. upstairs though, don't you, in the grad school? So I do. Yeah. Well, there are sweets downstairs whenever you want them. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's been a very good community that we have. I think, and I saw that a lot when me and my colleague Margot ran the International Women's Day campaign. With the period pads. Yes, mm. basically all of the women's health and reproductive health <laughs> issues. And we got a lot. Uh, I think we had two boxes full of donations to give out. And I think that was that just shows the character of a lot of the people in the grad school. And also there is the wonderful quiz that Jojo is thinking over. Yeah, the quiz is fun. And the History PGR seminar, which is this evening. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Are you presenting this one, Jess? No, I presented that the last one. But Georgia and Courtney are mm. presenting tonight. Well, it will be long past when this episode comes out. But and um, I feel like we're like plugging Manchester. Why people, <laughs> you should come to Manchester because we've got a great research community. Well, we really do. We do, and there's always there's a free wine. So if that wasn't <laughs> enough. I mean, I think if you include free pizza there, you'll definitely get a crowd. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's been one thing I appreciate about Manchester. Starting a PhD, before I left in the Philippines, a lot of people were going, oh, isn't this a lonely thing? Aren't you going to be alone all the time? And I was like, I don't think so. My dad was really worried about that as well. I was like, I have loads of friends. Shut up. Yeah, (laughs) but then coming here, suddenly you realize that actually, no, it's community. And I thought that was very important. I think my first year, I don't know if you guys experienced this but Christmas break was Christmas break I did no work yeah none and then come back getting so anxious about the fact that I didn't do any work and it turns out that many people didn't do it yeah and just gives this sense of like oh okay (laughs) yeah again I think it's important to have a culture of taking breaks and whether it is a coffee break in the middle Mm. of the day to give yourself a bit of a break or to just go away I think quite a few of the people who started with us just decided for a month in summer this is my month off yeah take an annual leave I think that's very important and like when I so I'm writing at the moment and when I'm writing I can't really sit still I have to write in like really short but so honestly like 10 minutes and I have to get up and walk away and I'm just very aware of it now because the com- computer cluster is quite busy so I'm like really aware that everyone might just let you see me coming in and out all the time but that's dangerous for me because I keep doing the same I have short bursts yeah. the thing is every time I'm, uh, I'm taking a break I'm like hmm what can I do Ooh, I think I'm yeah. hungry I'm gonna yeah, get a snack I, I'm, eat- I'm eating all those sweets in the bucket yeah honestly. <laughs> This is why Bucket is there. You have to reward yourself for having done something because there isn't this sense of achievement a lot of the time because your deadline is in three years' time. And because of this, it's so it's so important to celebrate the little things like yeah. I've hit a thousand words on this chapter that I'm absolutely hating writing. Like, yeah. yeah. Or I've, I've gone through a year of newspapers where nothing happened. But I finished this year. So. <laughs> yeah. And I think I think now, you know, 
because I can finally see an end inside of this PhD. I think one thing I learned, it's such a learning process about yourself, how you work, what's best for you, how you take breaks, how you switch off. I think I've learned so much about myself in the last three years. And doing this PhD, it's not just about learning about a topic, but learning about how you function as a human being, how many hours you actually need. Yeah. So have you got any um, funny stories? Funny stories in my research. Uh, it doesn't have to be also about your research. It could be like, you know. My PhD life. Yeah, exactly. Well, I did once get asked before I entered an archive if I was carrying any weapons. You know, I wanted to make a joke, didn't think that was appropriate <laughs> at the time. Why? You'll never know. <laughs> no, don't. Yeah, people have been, the last guy, George, we interviewed also had issues with security as well. It's just like, what do you think we are? Yeah. Like, honestly, we, we live in a weird, isolated bubble. Where Very we're obsessed, nerdy as well. Yeah, we're just obsessed with this one topic. To the extent that we're forcing ourselves to write 80,000 words on it, do you think we're really going to hold up this archive? Exactly. <laughs> with a machine gun? The one sentence I need Yeah. from this one obscure source. I don't know. I think funny stories. I don't know. My whole life is a joke. <laughs> As it is. None that I can think of at the moment. I think it's because I'm at the phase where I'm just like, oh my god, I need to get this thing done. Yeah. And so the joy has been sucked out of my life. <laughs> but I think the memorable ones for me are doing the archival research. I was in Switzerland for two months. Um, at the UNHCR archives and I think I started to look like a local because people would come to me and ask me for directions in French oh, and I was like oh that's nice <laughs> just, do you speak French? no <laughs> so I would just be like mm, English? <laughs> you know I'm getting a bit sentimental now because I really just can see the end and the pressure is there and I think I really haven't had this other opportunity other than during the PhD where you get to jump into like Geneva and go for a swim in the middle of the day mm. you get to go to the Holocaust Memorial Archives and just really dig deep into what being a refugee at that time meant. You get to talk to former refugees and tell their stories. And some of them are quite interesting because I learned, I asked one guy, I just met him randomly. So what's your favorite part about your childhood? And he goes, I actually loved being in a refugee camp. Oh. Because it was a beach camp. It was right. fun. And that was all I knew. And I think that really shook a lot of my ideas. And I think part of the PhD is that it's shaking a lot of these preconceptions that you have and you hold. I think that's something I'm definitely going to take away from this. Thinking about the people that you interviewed, most of them would have been refugees as children. Yes. And children perceive those situations so differently because they don't, you know, really, they're not really aware of their legal status, most of them. Yeah, and I think there's current research now about child refugees. And I know of a colleague of mine who's going to start his research on, I guess, the concept of the child in international protection. And I think those very important conversations. Child studies, I feel like, are having a renaissance. That's been my biggest takeaway from the past year, is that people are very interested in child history. Mm. I feel like I've missed something. Ria, thank you so much for coming. And best of luck with finishing your PhD. Thank you for letting me share my experience as a PhD <laughs> student. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast made by and for humanities researchers at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast or get in touch with us by email at 
nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicon.